Hey folks, let's face it. We're all writers, even if our title doesn't say it. Whether we're authors writing a story, screenplay, novel, working on a press release, website copy, or just revising an email for a boss to get a raise, writing has become a huge part of our day-to-day responsibilities. Just like any other skill, writing doesn't get better without instruction and practice. That's why our friends at Marketing Profs University created Marketing Writing Bootcamp. This online course starts June 11th. And you'll learn from over a dozen of the best and brightest instructors in the world of marketing writing. You'll get tons of great writing tips, new techniques for enhancing your writing style, and will learn to write with a relentless focus on your audience. Plus, because it's entirely online, you can learn from your computer, tablet, smartphone, whatever's easiest for you. If you're stuck on the train, hey, why don't you use that time to get smarter, you dummy? As a special offer to the Nerdist Writers Panel listeners, visit mprofs.com. M-P-R-O-F-S dot com slash Nerdist and use the promo code Nerdist, N-E-R-D-I-S-T, when you enroll to save $200 on Marketing Writing Bootcamp. Plus, you get over $1,000 worth of Marketing Prof seminars, classes, video tutorials free just for registering. course begins June 11th. There are 13 classes, each of about 30 or 40 minutes. It's entirely online. Um, This is the fifth year they've held the class. Uh, You get some great uh, instructors. Each class is taught by a subject matter expert specific to that topic. And you get a certificate upon the completion of the course. You get over $1,000 in freebies just for registering, including seminars, tutorials, additional writing classes, how-to guides, stuff like that. It's ideal for anyone who writes as part of their job responsibilities, which, as I said at the beginning of this, is everyone. Go to mprofs.com slash Nerdist. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey everyone, this is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, check it out. It's pretty fun. I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Um, so this is take, a, take it bored. This is how we start. Listen, I'm bored already. <laughs> let's just go. Let's go back downstairs. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Let's right? go there. Yeah. Go down. They'll be opened up by the time we get out of here. I will. Go I'm buying stuff. Nixon's friends. <laughs> I can't pass that up. That man. is a plug right now. There Guys, you, you didn't go. expect this plug. Whoever made Nixon's friends. That's right. Uh, Peter Horton is here. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, congratulations on the new show called Thanks. Odyssey. Is it Odyssey or American Odyssey? It's now officially American Odyssey. Okay. The screener I got was Odyssey. So American yeah. Odyssey, it starts April 5th. April 5th at 10 o'clock. Um, and let's talk a little bit, for people who don't know, just to kind of ease us in here, tell folks what the show is about, and then we'll kind of talk about how it came sure. to be. Yeah, it's, um, it's easiest to talk about the show if you start from what it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, no, this is going to get, it's going to start very broad. <laughs> there it's, are no werewolves. There are no werewolves. No, there are not werewolves. This, or vampires, shockingly. We're going to have to narrow way down. Yeah, no vampires. Zero in mummies. Of the, in spite of the fact that Peter Facinelli is in our show, that he is oh, not a vampire. I forgot he's a vampire guy. Um, it's not a CIA show. It's not an mm-hmm. FBI show. It's not a cop show. Um, it's a modern day conspiracy thriller. That's about normal people, um, and it's about a theme that I think is is really present um, for all of us right now, which is power and who has it. Um, and it asks the basic question of you know even in a, in a democracy like ours, which is fairly developed relative to the world, you know, do we still have power? Hmm. And and who has power? You know now. And this is a tale about three very normal people. One is a what's called a FET soldier, a female engagement team soldier who's over, overseas. Uh, the other is an uh, ex-prosecutor, kind of, um, uh, kind of you know, a, a guy who's, who once was very, very, very popular and very high on, on, on the hog, 
kind of an Elliot Spitzer minus the prostitutes. <laughs> um, and the third is uh, is a is a young uh, activist, political activist, mm-hmm. and it's about how the three of them stumble upon this one conspiracy, um, and they each find different points of it and parts of it, and they start unwrapping it and pulling the string and following it. And we get to have this sort of omnipotent view of knowing what all three of them know that they don't know. Um, so we know the bombs under the table, but they don't. Right. Um, yeah, that creates a really nice tension. Nice tension, yeah. yeah. Um, is this... Let me ask just about the process here for a sec. Did you mm-hmm. approach this thematically? What is it in this that, in this story specifically, mm-hmm. that kind of gets you excited to tell it? Well, it, the, the genesis of the idea came from <clears throat> uh, one of our producers, Simon Maxwell, who was... Um, used to be with Red Arrow, um, is, is one of our executive producers from London, who came to us at one point and said, you know, it would be really fun to do a modern take on the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, that's interesting. But uh, what does that mean? And, and yeah. what, what it really boiled down to, what was interesting to us about it, is the Odyssey is basically a story about someone trying to get home. Mm-hmm. And that's a good, achy theme that we like. Um, so the primary story, at least in season one, is about our our lead, Anna, played by Anna Friel, mm-hmm. who's terrific. Anna. Isn't she great? Isn't yeah, it? she just she just knocks you out in this. When you think about what she's doing, um, she's first of all she's Irish, so she's got an Irish accent. So she's speaking with an American accent, speaking French, which she actually does speak, and Arabic, which she learns learned phonetically. Wow. Um, and, and going through the, the rigor that she goes through on the show, it's, 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 it's a really committed performance. It's yeah. really fun to see. And I have to say, I, there were no credits on the screener that I got, so oh. I did not know that was her. Oh, is that right? I mean, th- she's an unbelievable actress. Yeah, she, she really like, is. transforms in this role. Yeah, a far, a far uh, cry from, uh, from whatever that character's name was on... Uh, from Pushing uh, Daisies. Pushing Daisies, right? yeah. yeah. Well, her, I, can't I can't remember her character's name, but... I mean, yeah. when we when when That's she was first suggested to us, we were, we had that same reaction. It was like, yeah, really? I don't think <laughs> um, and she was willing to come in and read for it, and we kind of put her through the paces um, nice. by a Skype, mm-hmm. and she just blew us away. Yeah. Um, um, all right. So to go back, so so yeah. how did the story start to take shape? I mean, even just talking to you a minute ago, clearly this political world is something you're interested in and yeah. sort of grew up steeped in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, the uh, John Ehrlichman of it all, <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Ehrlichman was my godfather, who was Nixon's second in command. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of grew up in politics. Um, but in a very different way than, you know, someone who whose, like, father was in politics. Like, yeah. you were sort of, you had this outsider perspective, it seems like, just by being, yeah. having a foot in. It's interesting because because um, John Ehrlichman for me was uh, was this incredibly intelligent paradigm for me. I mean, he I blame him for for me putting too much emphasis on intelligence because <laughs> he really had a facility sure. to him and was had you know an ego, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that got him in trouble. Well, and to to be successful in politics is often something you need. Often something you need. Um, and so my sense of politics kind of came out of a desire to be like him hmm. to a degree. That's interesting. Um, and, to, and to sort of strive for that kind of uh, engagement in the world, mm-hmm. I, I suppose. Um, so when the idea of, of let's do a, a story about someone trying to get home came along... Um, it was about three years ago, and we were in the. It was in the middle of the Occupy movement, and there was all that was going on in the Middle East back then, and mm-hmm. continues to go on. Um, and we just started. Um, Adam Armas and Kay Foster are my writing partners on this, and they had done Heroes, which mm-hmm. was a a trifurcated or even more yeah. uh, storytelling technique. And we thought, well, what a fun you know fun way to tell this story. Would be kind of like traffic. Take three perspectives. Mm-hmm. We each are, you know, it's three writers. Let's each take a story. Hmm. Um, and I ended up taking the Odell story. Adam took the Peter Facinelli story, and and Kate took the uh, Jake Robinson story. And then we'd all combine them, and we'd all work right. together on them. But well, that's an interesting process. Yeah, it was really we'll, interesting. We'll kind of dig into that in a minute. But, okay. But um, did you? How did even just the nuts and bolts of the process work? Did you guys sit down and say? Here are the characters we're interested. Here's the story we're interested in. Yeah, it was How weird. do we divide it up? 
It was weird. We, 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 we sat at a tavern, the restaurant tavern, <laughs> for hours. Um, That's kind of the fun part, right? <laughs> is you're building something from nothing. Yeah, we did. It really you're was. drinks. <laughs> we're drinking coffee, and we're eating muffins, and yeah. eating all that. And we, we got to know all the waiters, and they were like, how's the show going? <laughs> That's great. Um, and that went on for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, if, mm-hmm. and months, really. Um, and we would just sit, we'd started out by just sitting there saying, okay, that's what's interesting to us. It's interesting to, mm-hmm. to start with that theme. Who's the first character we're interested in? Okay, well, what's your, you know, initially it was, you know, who, who's Odysseus? Mm-hmm. And so we started with a sure. guy. It was a guy who was a soldier over in the Middle East because that's what's going on. And then it was, you know, we were talking to Russell Rothberg, who was our uh, creative executive at, at, at Universal, who said, why did you make her a woman? And we were like, well, that's interesting. So we looked into it and found these female engagement team soldiers, which are these they, the army uh, and special forces decided they needed a bridge when they went into villages to the women hmm. in the villages because because women wouldn't talk to the men. Yeah, and so they recruited these women who knew the language, knew the customs, the whole cosmography of mm-hmm. of that region, <clears throat> and they would go in in headdresses and the whole yeah. thing and be able to talk to women and. So we just started to build on her character first, and then there was the Occupy movement going on, and we mm-hmm. thought, well, it'd be fun to do one of those guys. You know, that's that's because that the Occupy movement was about everything and nothing, but primarily it was about the ninety nine percent versus the one percent. Mm-hmm. You know, the disparity in income and and, the, and therefore the disparity in power. Mm-hmm. So that seemed to fit into the theme we were interested in, sure. which was power. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the. Peter Facinelli of it all, or, or Peter Decker, mm-hmm. uh, which is Peter Facinelli's character name, uh, purely coincidental, um, was came out of kind of an Elliot Spitzer thing. It's like, what would be a fun story to tell? Like a, a guy who was who was really lauded and respected, who fell at mm-hmm. a certain point, um, and now is trying to reclaim his place in 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 life mm-hmm. and in his in his constellation. And well, so it's, we, it's interesting, know. too, and I'm going to interrupt you a lot. Please so do. I apologize in advance. Um, please do. That's an interesting character, too, because it, it does work on the power scale, right? He works yeah. thematically in a, in a way that the other two, that's different from the other two. Um, yeah. But it's also, right off the bat, he's a, a complicated character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's nice to have a character who is not who's not Odysseus, who's not just the hero yeah. coming in, who's someone that you don't know what he's going to do. Well, what we've tried to do with all of our characters, including the the bad the bad guys, mm-hmm. um, is give everybody a genuine perspective. Because the the question we're asking about who has power now isn't rhetorical. Mm-hmm. We're not we're we're trying to really ask it in yeah. this day and age of of Citizens United and and you know uh, all of the ways in which. The power structure in our country and really in the world now has been shifting so dramatically from everything from things like Citizens United to the to the uh, uh, emergence of technology in our lives and the Arab Spring and the power that that, that gives to individuals. Mm-hmm. So you know what are the what are the weapons of the power struggle now and where does the power lie and they're all questions that we're asking genuinely. So. When you get into the characters like Peter Facinelli's character, yeah. um, frankly, all of them, it's, it's, you know, what's their point of view? What do they really believe? What does Dick Cheney really think is right? Hmm. You know, without well, saying, I don't like Dick Cheney, so I want to paint him badly. Right. You know, it's, it's Which trying is the to best really... trick as a writer. Yeah. You know, is get into these guys. A villain never thinks he's the villain. That's it's exactly right. Get into right. these guys' heads. That's exactly But, right. I mean, it's interesting to approach these questions in a real way. Right. Um... And still tell an interesting story. And still, right. tell, still tell an interesting story for network TV. Right. Uh, like, that's a real balancing <laughs> act. So how do you not make it a polemic and how do you not yeah. make it a soap yeah. in the other direction? Yeah. You know, how did you guys start to find that balance? You know, first of all, it starts with the network television part of it, which is, mm. generally speaking, in network television, it's very, very hard to... Um, walk a path like the one we're walking mm-hmm. because it's our, the path we're walking is not uh, a broadcast path yeah. traditionally. It doesn't, it's not something where you're trying to cover all your bases to attract the biggest audience. Right. You know, it's, it's what's the best story to be told. How can we tell the story the most dynamically and, and kind of the most interestingly? 
And NBC, you know, therefore Bob Greenblatt, is kind of the only network, I think, at this point that, that really where that's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, just because his sensibility <laughs> is, is a cable sensibility that he's trying to apply to broadcast television. He's, yeah, it seems like know, the timing is right in general yeah. and, and at NBC specifically. I mean, we should also talk about, you know... This is this is the first. This isn't the first series you've co-created, right? I've co-created pilots before, but it's the first series I've co-created. Yeah. Um, But you've been in the industry for a while. We know you as an actor. We know you (laughs) as a director. Um, For the most part, in network television. Yeah. Uh, So you must have taken lessons from being on the other side of the camera and being behind the camera to apply to creating this show, where everything kind of came together to actually. Go to series and be a series. It's it's you know it's it's um, it's kind of this moment. I think everybody, uh, you know, if if you really commit yourself to a career, you get to a certain point in that career where all of the things you've learned, you know, (laughs) throughout time, kind of come together, sure, and help you create a moment Mm -hmm. um, in your life. And I think this is that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, acting was a great way to learn to be a director. I'm uh, sure. It really, it's like, it's like being a, a soldier in the field if you want to become a general or a captain. Mm-hmm. You know, you really can speak from the inside out mm-hmm. there. Being a composition major in college helped me as a director. Uh, Both both literally because of music and whatnot for scores and that sort of thing. But also, more importantly, um, understanding the music of directing Mm -hmm. or storytelling. You know, storytelling is is as much about the music as it is about the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Um, When when does a piece swell? When does it it need to get really loud and dynamic? And when does it need to be quiet and play a counter melody? And... um, and then all of the years of producing, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was, you know, Grey's Anatomy or Six Degrees or Lone Star, or mm-hmm. to be able to manage a project of this scale, um, this yeah. is this is a this is the biggest thing I've ever tried. Um, it's an ambitious show. Yeah, I mean, when you think <laughs> about the fact that we, you know, we wrote it in Los Angeles, we're shooting it in New York and in Morocco. Um, I was wondering where the. Uh the desert parts were. Yeah, it was in Morocco. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Um, to keep, you know, so we have two crews, two casts, um, you know, doing 13 episodes. Um, the only way I'm able to even have a slight handle on that <laughs> is because of the producing experience at sure. this point. And, and so all of those things kind it's of... It's very practical. It becomes yeah, very it is. practical. It's very, very practical. I mean, yeah. I, I did a show, uh, produced a show for NBC a few years ago called The Philanthropist where we filmed the whole thing in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was in, you know, that was perfect experience for this because I was living in South Africa editing from there where the editorial bays were in New York where Tom mm-hmm. Fontana who created it was and the writers room was and then there was casting in Los Angeles and so it wow. was balancing it from that standpoint so that was really really important mm-hmm. to getting ready to do this one um, but uh, the most fun I've ever had um, to be able to do that on the other side of that coin is mm-hmm. is what a gift to have that opportunity. Um, oh, and like you say, for it to come from network television is really uh, unusual. Because mm-hmm. um, it is, it doesn't feel like network television when you watch it. It, no. it, it feels like its own thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> for sure. You know, <laughs> you, it is something you probably would see on cable, but it's even, yeah. it's weird, it's just kind of its own thing. I don't it absolutely really know how to describe is. it. And I feel like that's kind of the way we're headed in TV. That's right. You know, people are. We're sick of seeing the same thing. That's we right. We want to see something unexpected. We want to see yeah. singular voices um, or strong authorial voices. That's right. Um, I'm curious about putting the story together uh, <laughs> for Odyssey. As you say, it's a it's a political thriller, mm-hmm. uh, which suggests a sort of big interlocking yeah. story uh, taking place over these episodes. And are you? Did you treat this as a season one? Did you treat this as a miniseries? What was the thought going into that as far as closure on the big story? Yeah. Um, we, you know, the, the the writing of this was 
so much about finding a string on the ground and just pulling it, mm-hmm. you know, and it was sort of like, how far is this going to go? You know, does this, does this string go all the way to a perennial series or is it going to stop after six of these things, you know? Yeah. And, and we really didn't know when we yeah. started to tell you the That's truth. Neat. It was just kind of like, here's an interesting idea. Let's, let's, let's go there. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of, we sort of started from what's interesting to us. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a scene that would be fun. Can we make our way to it? That's um, really cool. You know, and, it, and, and what ended up happening with this one um, is that, indeed, the question of power mm-hmm. is a big enough one and expands enough, especially in this day and age where power isn't regional at all. Mm-hmm. It's global. Mm-hmm. Um, corporations are not nationalistic anymore. They just aren't. Um, their reach and their power is international. It's yeah. global. So, you know, how far can you go? You can go as far as you want to. Mm-hmm. So we have a, you know, fully mapped, obviously fully mapped out first season where we're done shooting it. Um, and I have a whole host of ideas for next season. Oh, that's um, great. Well, it seems like, you know, you know again, working thematically, you mm-hmm. have so much territory you can cover. Yeah. But you also have these very strong characters that when you say this would be a cool scene, how do we get to it? There's a roadmap there. There's a, there, you know, it may yeah. be a winding road, but... And there's, there's three of them. You know, we can explore three Absolutely. different worlds, really which cool. could last us for a while. And the other thing that's really f- amazing about um, telling a story like this in a trifurcated way, mm-hmm. which I'm, you know, I know Steve Gagan found really fun in Traffic, and, and um, I, even in Modern Family they find fun. Mm-hmm. It's like you're going along in one story, and you get a little bored, and you just go <laughs> click, Absolutely. go to the next story, you know, yeah. and suddenly it's reinvigorated. From a writing stand- standpoint, it's... It's heaven. You can bail on scenes early. You just can. You can just leave. I need a break from this That's guy. Right. <laughs> and editorially, it's great. Yeah. You just sit in the That's editing room and you're going, you know what, I, I'm tired of this story or this story's getting a little boring or it needs more traction. Let's just put more of the scenes together in that mm-hmm. story until it really gets running and now let's pull the rug yeah. out from underneath it. That's interesting. Did, did you, when did the pilot story start to take shape? Hmm. You know, because it, it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. But, I don't know, it never feels overcrowded. Oh, good. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's easy to follow. It's you know, you're you're with these characters. Good. Um, I'm curious about how you guys kind of broke down episode by episode and mm-hmm. figured out how much story an episode can hold. That was a really um, boy. I'll tell you something. The, the answer to that is is we just in a way got lucky uh, because. We would we would ask that question, and you know, we sit there, and you just kind of go, okay, what's you know, we have our big, everyone does the big whiteboard up, mm-hmm. and you put this story. Here's this this episode. Here's Peter's story. Here's Adele's story. Here's Jake's story. What's happening there, and mm-hmm. what's happening there, and and then we get to the end sometimes of these stories, and go, oh my god, we have so much story in here. I, we'll never, that, you know, yeah. network television is down to forty two minutes and twenty eight seconds to the frame. Yeah. I mean, it's really a, a, a brick wall, um, unlike any other sort of delivery system out there. And so, you know, can we fit all this into one? And sometimes we would have to, like, pull some story out and find a different ending for it. Because we really, you know, the fuel of this show is tension. It's not action. Mm-hmm. And so you really need, you know, we really wanted it kind of every act break and every end of episode or even every beginning of the episode to have a real sense of... of mm-hmm. Of you know combustible fuel, and so you know you know if you had to pull story out, you had to find another way to end an episode or sure. end an actor that had enough dynamics, and and it was real stakes, not kind of just right. try and fabricate them with score and close up <laughs> moving right. in someone's face. You'll get to that in season four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we do our live episode. Um, oh come on! Yeah. <laughs> There's no show suited worse. It's so true. <laughs> Um, the, but that tension thing is tough too. Yeah. I mean, that's because you, you have to give the audience something. Yeah, you do. There has to be a payoff to that, which again comes back to you know what will what will an episode hold? How much story can we tell? What yeah. are we revealing? Right? Because it's not three days of the condor. No, it's and it's you all can't you tease know it out till it, the very last. It's minute. also not lost, you mm-hmm. know, which is a bit of a fantasy mm-hmm. thriller. Um, so you can't really have what's in that box for six episodes, you know, or or a year or six years. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, you can sort of buy some leeway with that sort of thing when you're telling a story that's out of this world a little bit, but, 
But in this case, we're trying to tell uh, an authentic thriller mm-hmm. that takes place in real life. And so to tease an audience like that, you can't really get away with it. So we had to create tension and still pay it off and say, and this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, we, don't, we don't try and, and get clever with an audience like that where you just kind of hold it back and hold it back and hold right. it back and then have that be the, the tension of it, the, the lack of revelation, right. and, then, and then eventually you kind of try and reveal it. We, had to, we really realized from the beginning we had to like let people know what was going on mm-hmm. because that's that omnipotent view again yeah. you know, or omniscient view. And um, that's interesting. I mean, the, letting the audience put together the puzzle like you say, having the pieces that the other characters don't. It, yeah, we know more than they do. Right. But that also yeah. could create the problem of us getting ahead of them. Yeah. And them seeming dumb. But if you care about them. Right. You and know, I think that's the, the great trick. And, and they walk into the room and you know the bomb's there. You're yeah. going to be worried for them. Yeah. And, and you're right. You can't, you can't, they have to seem smart the whole time, even though we know. You know? Well, we're also, and I think you guys <clears throat> do a very good job of this, emotionally invested in them. Yeah, well, so that's the other part the emotional story is as important. It has to be in yeah. TV, right? Well, that's the other part of it. I mean, I you know my roots are in you know character, then thirty something in yeah. that world, and and we really wanted to not only have the fuel be tension, but also be tension because of well uh, sort of full bodied characters, mm-hmm. um, so that they could have lives that you really related to and could kind of um, empathize with. So. That's our trick, I guess, mm-hmm. is you care about these people enough and keep them smart enough and at the same time let us, as an audience, know what they don't know. Yeah. And, and you know, that's what's fun about it. That's this show seems it. impossible to write. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you guys... Did you... Uh, so once it got picked up, did you guys put together staff? How did it work? It was... this. You know, it, it sort of begs the question of how will we ever do this for season two? <laughs> um, the way this one unfolded was it started off with the three of us in, in the city writing the pilot, right. and, and which you know, is an amazing little writers' room. Like that's yeah, perfect. That was that was fun. Yeah. you know that was the tavern experience. You know? <laughs> um, then it became you know we gave it to the network. Uh, we the, the studio had written, had paid us to write it on spec. Mm-hmm. We gave it to the network. They really liked it. They were going to make it. They were going to make it. And then uh, Greenblatt called us up and said, oh, you know what? I have this new model I'm trying to play, uh, which is straight to 13. Mm-hmm. We're going, oh, good. And he says, so <laughs> what that means is you're not making a pilot. You're writing more scripts first. Right. So what that really meant was, <laughs> here's the good news is you're, you're, we're going straight to 13. The bad news is we're not really going straight to 13. We're in fact not going straight to anything except scripts. Right. So we had us write three more scripts. And so we, we hired one writer, mm-hmm. uh, Davi Waller, to, to come in and help us with that. And so we wrote three more scripts. They really liked him a lot, and they said, we're not quite ready to commit to it. Wow. Then it was like, okay, um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll commit to uh, you writing three more scripts, and, um, and then we'll see. So we wrote, we hired two other writers. God brought them in. We wrote three more scripts. So we had seven scripts. And then it was, okay, um, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll go back to pilot. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make a pilot, but we want you to write all 13 scripts. And so we, then we were like, okay, we're making a pilot, but we're writing. So we hired a staff to, go, to write the rest of the scripts. And so we spent the last summer working on the rest of the scripts because if we went to pilot and if we went to series – We'd have to. We the only way to do this would have to, to have all the scripts written ahead of time, so mm-hmm. that the logistics of shooting sure. them, block shooting them, would make sense. Yeah, which makes sense. But they're still not committing to. They're still not committing anything. to it. And so we, by the time we That's got crazy. committed to a pilot, we had already had hmm. our scripts written. Well, that must make production a whole lot easier. It was. It was a, <laughs> a lifesaver for production. So uh, although, I mean, that does. We've and we, we've talked to people on who've kind of done it both ways, where you know the BBC model, where they right. write all the scripts and then shoot them all. Versus the U.S. model where you're just writing to catch up to production. Um, You know, both have good and bad about them. But when you have all the scripts fairly ready to go before production starts, do you lose that spontaneity? Or do you have producers or writer-producers on uh, set to make sure that things can change and to make sure that... You know, we... um 
since there's three of us and we have one of our writers, uh, Julia Rachman, who was in our, our writer's room, ended up being our person on set in Morocco. So she's, oh, okay. she's been there wow. forever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she's been there so long that she likes it. Um, and I, I, by the way, Morocco is an amazing place, but you, you, you to stay for a long, long period of time. It, well, it's, to be on any location for a long time. It's, and and it's awesome. Morocco's intense. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a very intense culture. It's, it's fabulous. I mm-hmm. love it. But after a while, you know, it's a third world country and you're, you know, you're not drinking the water. You're careful yeah. about the food you eat. You, you know, you're, it's a different language, a different culture. And, sure. and uh, that's really charming. And then it gets tough. And then eventually it gets really, you know, you, you, you get connected to it. And she's in the, the latter category. But, <laughs> but having her there and then, the, then us, you know, either in there or in New York, allowed us to still be somewhat flexible. But mm-hmm. having the scripts written ahead of time was the only way we could have done sure. the show. The only possible way. Yeah. Um, just financially and logistically, uh, just because it was such a big uh, bite of the apple. But... Um, the thing that's tricky about doing that is how long it takes. Hmm. Um, you know, you're really, yeah. if, if you're separating out those two processes, you're not doing a, a whole series in, in, you know, if it's 13 episodes, you're usually doing that in six months. Right. In this case, you're doing it in a year and change. Wow. And so I think if people can figure out the finances of it for writers, mm-hmm. um, it would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But right now what happens is the writer only gets paid for the episodes they write. Right. That takes forever. And then you're supposed to wait and then get paid on a production fee, which That's is right. not as much. And so over a year and change, you're getting less money than you would if you had done two shows, which right. you normally could do. Yeah. And this, again, so. this is a thing that the business is sort of contending with right yeah. now is there are shorter orders and you know right. rooms are only existing for three, six months right. at a time. And yeah, it's, it's, right. it's a weird time. <laughs> it really is. It's a weird time kind of you know, across the, the gamut in, yeah. cult, in our culture because of well, technology. Sure. I mean, technology is evolving much further than our ability to know what the implications of that are. Absolutely. Um, this is your next show, right? <laughs> <laughs> it could be braided into this one, robots. too. <laughs> yeah, right. There we go. Um, tell me a little bit, if you would, about the uh, the pilots that you worked on in the past hmm. um, as a co-creator. Well, my other, uh, the, my heartbreak <laughs> project, everyone's got at least one. Uh, my biggest one is is I created a show with Josh Brand, mm-hmm. who, who is the Northern Exposure creator yeah. and... I'll fly away, and he's doing the Americans now. He's on that show, and he, he's Damn. a spectacular writer. And we we decided at one point it'd be fun to do a western. You were right, and it's the, <laughs> it's heaven. And so, and, and we sat down. What we did is we came up with this idea. Called, it was called Reconstruction, mm-hmm. and it was made for NBC as well. The pilot was, and mm-hmm. it, the, it's an amazing project because it's not just a western. It takes place six months after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And the Civil War, you know, there were basically 3 million people killed at a time, and there were 30 million people in this country. Yeah. So that it was like everybody was de- des- yeah. decimated, you know. Um, everyone was broken. So it was a Western taking place at a time of people trying to heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was even a little bis- bit of uh, magical realism in it, and it was, it, was a, it was positing that people in that kind of extreme are more open to kind of the world beyond the rational. And so things can happen, like a panther, a black panther shows up from Florida in Missouri, hmm. you know, and what does that mean? And people take that to think it's more than it. And it was a really wonderful, convoluted, cool, edgy Western that we made uh, for NBC, and it almost got made, almost got made. Oh, it was wow. like down to the last <laughs> two. It was between us and Grimm. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and they chose Grimm, and that was sure. that was my biggest heartbreak. Uh, and, and it was it's one I still think we should make again. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you know. it feel uh, it's one of those concepts that feels Solid. like it's worth exploring, and the time is right. It was so interesting from a character standpoint to have a to to have a character piece in the midst of such an extreme yeah. circumstance. It's like it's Mad so Max loaded. in those ways. You know, it's those yeah. cool movies that are <laughs> so out there, but tell human stories in the middle of them. I, I find those just the best. Um, so that one's my big heartbreak. Um, 
And then he and I created, a, Josh and I created another one called, uh, called The Other Reality, which is a comedy about reality television that, that, I, that we almost got made That's into fun. a pilot. I, eventually, that'll get made. <laughs> it's a really, really cool, cool idea. And then I, I did, uh, co-created The Body Politic mm-hmm. with Jason Rothenberg and Bill Robinson that we, we made a pilot for the CW on. And then I've been, I've been writing for years. I wrote a, a thing for Showtime years ago. It was a limited series called Infidelity. What was um, that? It was really, really cool. It was before the affair, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is which is a great show. Um, it was basically taking infidelity and looking at it from three different affairs. <laughs> there I am again, try forgetting story well, telling, yeah. but but it, it feels like I mean this is something, and and even hearing the concept of these other shows, like this is a mode of storytelling that interests you that yeah. to find the core theme or the yeah. core idea and then look at it from different angles. Yeah. Um, That's exactly right. You know, the, the shifting points of view is exactly right. really interesting. I think it, it's... We couldn't have gotten away with that ten, on TV ten years ago, which is really strange. I know. Storytelling has opened up, and, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, in television, especially in the cable world, but networks are going to have to join that for sure you know um to to survive and that's that's the that's what's brilliant about green glass approach but the 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 infidelity was a traditional affair mm-hmm. and then there was um a gay couple who that one was cool because the other two stories were about fidelity going into infidelity and the the story about the gay man the oh, nice. two gay couple was a story about two men going from infidelity to fidelity uh, I, I don't think I have seen that. Is that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> why, let's make that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why isn't that on? Isn't that interesting? Interesting. It's really cool. Yeah. And Douglas Carter idea. Bean wrote that one. I wrote. I don't know who that is. Oh, he's a playwright from okay. New York. He's fantastic. Very funny, funny man. Great. Um, and I wrote one. He wrote the other. And, and uh, Jill and, and Jennifer Sprecher, the Sprecher sisters, wrote the third okay. one. Um, so th- I did that. I wrote a, a thing called The Buzz for ABC, a pilot, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a farce on network television news um, that almost got made. Um, so, I, you know, I've always, um, even when I was acting, beginning to acting, I would always, uh, while I was not getting work, I would write scripts. I'd just sit there and write these. Well, this, you know. this is what I was going to ask. I mean, this is sort of what I was leading to was if you always have done this, have you always been a writer? Have you always wanted to make stuff? Yeah, it's, it's you know, my, my, uh, career path has never been intentional it always <laughs> has been sort of something that 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 uh, again i'd find strings on the ground and pull them and they would just lead me places um i'm not one of those guys like steven spielberg who came out of the womb knowing right. he wanted to be a director um i wanted to be a musician first and and then that turned there's a, a whole tale about that that turned into a acting career not you know not by choice it just happened really? in a weird way um and the minute I started to be an actor, I started to find myself hanging around the DPs and the directors mm-hmm. and the editors and, and realized that's where I wanted to go. So I used acting to become that. Well, and it seemed like, yeah, those happened, at least from what I could tell on the bio- biographical stuff that I saw, very close together. Yeah. That, like, as soon as you had a yeah. foot in as an actor, you're like, I want to yeah. I want to be part of some of this other stuff. Yeah. I, 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 I've, never, I've never been comfortable being an actor. It's never, <laughs> been, it's never been my thing. You know, it's it's always something I I'd have to work at doing. You know, mm-hmm. actors who are real actor actors, it's just they do it. It's just who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's magical. But I always had to work at it. I had to like get myself to want to you know to want to do it. Sure. You know, as opposed to it was never a comfortable fit. It wasn't. Yeah, that makes sense. It wasn't. But it was a great way to do what is a comfortable fit, mm-hmm. which is what I'm doing now. Um, Interesting. Uh, but again, it wasn't like I sort of said. Oh, I've just graduated from college with a degree in composition. Now I, I want to be a director. I mean, it right. really was this this path. And for some reason, writing just was there. Mm-hmm. Partly because you can just do it. Yeah, that's you true. You know, a director needs an army. Yeah. Um, you know, an actor needs to be hired. Mm-hmm. Um, a writer, you can just sit down with a you know pad and paper or a computer and just start writing. Yeah, and. and so I wrote some horrible things. Of course, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> what What was the nature of the horrible things? Oh, I'm always God. curious. But the first thing I wrote is a full script that I could at least show people. Because <laughs> uh, the first things were, were just so <laughs> earnest and, and... Oh, of course. Oh, my God. So <laughs> embarrassing. And then I finally wrote this thing called As With The Wind, speaking of earnestness. <laughs> 
which is kind of a mashup between I think Inherit the Wind and uh, oh and and Tender Mercies. I mean, it was sure. like this, and it was a story about. It was it was in the eighties, and it was when all of the that sort of uh, underground railroad of refugees from El Salvador and Nicaragua mm-hmm. were coming up to America, and it was trying to tell a story in the Midwest of somehow that becoming, you know. <laughs> and I remember this. I somehow got a chance to pitch this idea to Mark Rosenberg, who was the who was the head of, of Warner Brothers at the time. Oh, my God. And I remember sitting there, as I'm in the, he was sweet enough to hear the pitch. He's someone I had met him through <laughs> through friends. I remember t- pitching him the story and just watching his face slowly drop <laughs> oh, no. through the pitch. Um, That's great. And, and my takeaway from that was, well, then I'll write the script and show him. And exactly. I wrote it. And I'll it was, prove it. It was, well, I'll prove it. But again, you know, that's how you learn. Um, sure. Well, that is the thing. I mean, when, it was political. when you were young and, it was and when political. you were starting, well, obviously, you're, you know, the interest has been there. But yeah. when you're young, when you're starting out as a writer, it's you, you chase the things you're passionate about. Yeah. And sometimes you are an insufferable earnest you really, 20-something. I, I, I was absolutely <laughs> that. I was absolutely that. And, and my wife will say I'm still that. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's – it's, uh, you know, Russell Banks has the best description – for me, of writing, um, and frankly, all that we do as as artists in this business, which is, he says, um, a dog knows exactly what it means to be a dog. <laughs> Even a monkey knows what it means to be a monkey. But human beings are the only species that need to be reminded of what it means to be human, <laughs> and that's what writing or filmmaking or you know, you pick your art form. Hmm. That's does. really interesting. Um, um, who are your who? Who do you like as a reader, as a consumer mm. of entertainment? Yeah, we'll get on this train. <laughs> we got another half hour. <laughs> what are, awesome. I'm not going to say who are your influences, but what are the stuff um, that you really got into that you think helped form the way you create? Yeah, wow, what a cool question. I'm very good at this. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it starts with the classics for me. Um, you know... From a directing standpoint, what I like I said, music was my first reference in Beethoven, mm-hmm. specifically his symphonies for some reason. Really? Um, How young when you started listening and playing this stuff? Um, I started playing piano when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, you know, I, I grew up playing little, you know, Bach cantatas and things like that. Um, when I was in college, I got this assignment. You know, we, had, we had a big senior project, and mine was to take all the Beethoven symphonies and analyze every note. Uh, and I fell in love with them in the process. Yeah. And, and it, it can go one of two ways. <laughs> it sure can. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like that's something I've had to do with literature. And, and yes. Like, it, it had to have the same experience. That's like, right. I didn't know how much was here. That's right. You know? And, and, what, it, and what it all... I mean, when you, when you listen to a symphony of any kind, it just, it's just music, mm-hmm. you know? And then when you realize how much thought went into every note and how much structure was involved and how it modulates and evolves and you know the whole idea of a symphony is you state a theme and then you restate the theme and then invert the theme and reinvent the theme and it becomes a climactic theme and then it comes back and restates i mean that's and that's basically you know a good speech is the same thing said in 20 different ways you know it's it's all storytelling it's all storytelling yeah that's neat um so that was probably my primary influence and then um as a writer well let me let me just ask one one follow-up on that was music to you a good fit in the way a lot of this other stuff was and the way maybe acting wasn't? Yeah. It was comfortable for you? A- absolutely. That's great. You know, music, uh, you know, as John, John O'Donoghue says, the, the Irish uh, philosopher says, music is what language would love to be if it could. <laughs> you know, it's, absolutely. It, it's You've got, tried to write a page of anything, you know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's and really there's something about music for me that gets to the heart of of some truth in life mm. we know that's ineffable mm-hmm. in, in a way that the other art forms can't quite do yeah um so that was my first sort of you know uh driver mm-hmm. into the arts um and as a writer you know john updike was just mm-hmm. my hero um i gobbled up everything of his um he just had a way with language and words they broke all the gram- grammatical errors, uh, <laughs> but but communicated such a truth about human nature. Yeah, he was not a pretty writer. No, he wasn't. 
Uh, but but yeah, there's emotional truth in it. Yeah, which I think. I, I guess at his time there were a few guys doing that. Yeah, I think so. But I yeah, think he, so. Was, he was one of the best at it. Yeah, he, he, he had. I mean, he described Americana better mm-hmm. than probably anybody, other than maybe you know Samuel Clemens. Um, but he he described modern Americana mm-hmm. um, in in such a such a, a honest and 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 sort of uncomfortable way, um, yeah. you know, kind of kind of taking the middle America and you know pulling it apart and seeing underneath the covers and behind the, the closed doors, mm-hmm. and I just found that uh, staggering. Um, so That's that those were the too. those were the first people, and then as a as I was growing up, you know, I grew up, most of my movie experiences were in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, where movies were, were, you know, mainstream movies were art form. Yeah. And so, you know, all of the directors back there, I just fell in love with, sure. you know, the Coppola and Scorsese and, um, you know, all, every single, you know. Um, Arthur Penn. Uh, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Penn was. Lumet yes, 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 yeah. yes. All of them. For me, I was just, I just, you know, followed them frame by frame, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of like I did with the Beethoven symphonies. You know, I took Taxi Driver apart, I think, more than oh, wow. I want to admit. Um, <laughs> <Are> you okay? <laughs> or The Conversation. I sure. think The Conversation is maybe my favorite movie. Hmm. Uh, it's it's perfect movie. Yeah. Uh, it taught me everything I want to know about sound and, and film, that's sure. for sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and, um, and like you say, you know, Arthur Penn and, and Sidney Lumet, they, you know, um, well, I feel like guys like that, as opposed to Scorsese and Coppola, were doing what Updike was doing. That's right. This That's very true. That's real, true. raw. That's right. You know, almost fly on the wall. That's right. Not pretty kind of filmmaking, but stunning. Stunning. Uh, Robert Altman too. Robert Altman, absolutely, absolutely. But Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, that's that's Updike in a way. I yeah. Mean, it's, oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's. And and what you know a much tamer version of that um, all of that was thirty something which was about mm-hmm. just about normal people and their intricate sort of you know dirty lives mm-hmm. um, and I think that's where I really got to be an apprentice as a director mm-hmm. uh, because it was both both of the creators of that show were directors as well as writers oh that's right yeah, you know, yeah. Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz yeah. and and so. You know, it was kind of the uh, we used to call it the Edswick Samurai School of Directing, uh-huh. because he was like he was a taskmaster, really, for directors. He'd bring you down. He'd like I remember the first time I directed an episode of the, of the show. He took me down to the set. So, so what are you planning on on doing here? And I'd start walking him through my shots, and he'd sit there and he'd go, <sighs> just kind of shake his head. And he listened for a while. And then at one point, I remember him standing up, going away. And someone walked by. He goes, he's just not getting it. <laughs> oh, so you no. sit there and you go, okay, my God, what am I not getting? And, you know, <laughs> what, what, what am I learning? And, and, and that's where I really was able to work out, you know, what works mm-hmm. on film. Because it's, it's, it's low stakes directing. It's an episode. Yeah. Well, um, that, and that was something I was kind of curious about. I mean... 30-something, you guys were doing, what, 24 episodes a season? Yeah. And it was uh, the early 90s? Is that when it was? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah late, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there was a, a form to what TV looked like then. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't changed a ton, especially on that kind of show. I mean, I feel right. like Grey's Anatomy is a good example. Like, right. That is pretty much the same form. Yeah. Um, but how, what, what does a director do? You know, what's your job when you step into episode eight of yeah. 24? Well, it was different on that show than it is on most shows today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, what Ed and Marshall really pushed, because they're directors, was they wanted directors to come in and do something different. Really? They wanted to bring their own thing. So we had... Which is very unusual. Very unusual. Especially then. You know, we had some directors come in that would use, you know, the, the widest angle they'd use was to 200 millimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was long, long, long lens observed from across the soundstage. Um, and others would come in with wide handheld lenses up hmm. close. Um, you know, there was always a, a tone that, was, that yeah. was, would bridge. Uh, there was a pace that would bridge. Um, but visually, it was always open for directors to come in and do something interesting. Mm-hmm. Today, generally, it's not that. Generally, mm-hmm. it's you set a, you set a, an image or a vision, a visual, in the pilot, mm-hmm. and then you hire someone to keep that vision right. consistent. Um, 
you know, on Odyssey, uh, uh, on American Odyssey, <laughs> um, we <laughs> still getting used to that. Um, we we do a little of both. You know, there is a a great opportunity with that show because it takes place in such disparate places mm-hmm. to have two kind of different styles of shooting in New York versus over in Morocco. First of all, the color palette is so mm-hmm. distinct. In New York are the blues and the grays and Mali is the yellows and earth tones and, mm. and, and whatnot of that region. And, and it tends to be a little more handheld over there and a little more on the dolly and long lens kind of thing in New York. But that's not a rule. Right. You know, not, I don't have anyone sitting on the set there saying, come on now, we have to stay right. with this style. Um, it is what's best for the story that's right. told. Yeah. That's right. What I'm curious about Grey's Anatomy, too, because you directed yeah. that pilot. Yes. yes. Um, what are the choices you make? Because you do know when you're directing a pilot, hmm. if this goes to series, I am sort of setting the template for yes. this. So what choices do you make as a director, as a storyteller? Hmm. Directing, for example, that pilot, but any that you can think of that might be uh, a sample. You know, I usually, um, I, I, you know, I steal from the best, first of all. <laughs> you know, I, I, I watch sure. movies. I, I get inspired by movies. Um, that one, I think, I, I, the, the, the uh, Insider had just come out, hmm. which is one of my favorite movies. It's a great movie. You know, of all time. Um, and I just was inspired with that sort of, uh, long lens, weird angle kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. where and and in, in, uh, short depth of field, where f- things are out of focus sometimes, and, mm-hmm. and so and I was shooting for a network that was very network. Mm-hmm. You know that at that time um, there was Steve McPherson was the head of the network, and he very much wanted it to be traditional network. Mm-hmm. But you're also contending with there are you know four other medical shows on at the same time That's so how true. does this one look different yeah I would imagine you know to a point to okay. a point that his concern wasn't that <laughs> no no not his but yours <laughs> mine certainly was um, and no, Shonda I'm sure wanted to look like all the other ones That's right and and Shonda Shonda Rhimes who created created Grey's Anatomy and I would sit down and try and and, and thread that needle mm-hmm. you know it's it, yeah. how can we get away with as much as we can get away with and still not have them upset and, and freaking out. And, <laughs> you know, some of the ways we do, like color, for example, in Grey's mm-hmm. Anatomy. Um, if you look at the pilot of Grey's Anatomy, it, it sort of evolved over time a little more towards traditional color. Mm-hmm. But the pilot of Grey's Anatomy, we, we really tried to sneak in as much as we could of kind of a hand-painted uh, black-and-white photograph feel. So that the colors are, are muted. Mm-hmm. They're there. But they're kind of muted, and, and, and they're, they're a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, and we shot it a little bit um, kind of dreamy um, mm-hmm. in that way, so that it isn't literal. It isn't just bright and in your face. Right. Um, and it was really fun. I mean, you know, limitations sometimes give you really unusual ideas. For sure. Because uh, you have to make it work within a, yeah. a often, tight box. Yeah, more helpful than having... Wide open free carte blanche, yeah. yeah. Um, that's interesting. So that's anyway. That's how we kind of operated there. But that was a much more rigid network at that time than than NBC mm-hmm. is now. Sure. Um, well, I'm curious too. Sort of the other side of directing, which mm-hmm. is working with actors. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, like Thirty Something was so actor driven. Yeah. It was. It was so much about the emotions. Yeah. Um, and so much of the stuff you've worked on as a director have been. Uh, so what have you learned over the years about working with actors and, you know, finding finding the best way to tell the story through that? Yeah, boy. Because that's the job. It is. It's a big, it's, it's you know, I think uh, casting is hmm. 70% of my job as a director. Sure. You know, um, I often say this, that that you can have a great movie. In fact, there's plenty of examples of it where you have a great script and a great cast and, a, and an okay director, and it's still a great movie. Mm-hmm. You really don't have that in any other combination of those. Yeah. Um, you know, Lion in Winter, great <laughs> script, great script, mm-hmm. amazing cast, directing, not so good, <laughs> but still a great movie, sure. really fun to watch. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. you got to cast it right. Um, and, and, you know, the, the uh, thing of... When you get in that 
pressure area where they're, everyone's saying, well, everyone's going, it's pilot season, and you've got to grab this person. Man, that's where you got to step back and slow down and I've heard wait. heard a lot this year specifically. Is that right? Probably yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. That's Especially funny. when it comes to men in their 40s. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Can't find them. They're not out there. Um, <clears throat> so there's that. But then there's, then there's the actual process of doing it. And um, there's just... So many. Uh, this is where being an actor, had, you know, going through that process, yeah. and then of studying. I, you know, I studied with Stella Adler and with really? uh, with Milton Katsalas and Peggy Fury, and kind of all these, all the great hmm. coaches back then. Um, so I really learned well wow. as an actor, um, and then going through it, and then finally with uh, the final person I studied with as a director for actors. Mm-hmm was Nina Fosh. I she was a she was a she was a, a, a kind of obscure movie star back in the 50s okay. who became a coach and and did pretty well mm-hmm. as a coach. It was a really really good coach. Um, and she would sit down and she would have me, you know, when I'd prepare for things that I was going to direct. I directed a movie for Universal called The Cure. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget this moment. She had me sit down and with every line put an intention next to it, hmm. you know, to apologize, yep. you know, to, to, to hit you on the forehead with a hammer, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of active description of that line. And I remember at first going through that going, my God, this is tedious. Sorry? <laughs> it's not my job. I'm the director, you know. Um, but I remember this one moment in that movie where um, there was this moment. This, the, the Cure is a, is a film about a little boy who has AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, his friend, played by Brad Renfro, um, sort of befriends this little boy. He's the only one who will befriend him because he has AIDS. And they decide to find a cure, and they go off and search the oh, cure. Yeah, yeah. And they go, they try cooking nettles and mm-hmm. everything. And they go down the Mississippi River looking for a cure. And there's this moment where, um, in the cure, where Annabella Sciorra's character, um, her son had just died. And she's driving back from the hospital, and it's the moment where she finally breaks down. And we did a couple of takes, and she finally called me over to the car, and she said, I'm dry. I can't get there. And I had written down, because of Nina Fosh, I had written down this little thing that said, in that line, which she had to deliver, to call him back, her, me and her son. Wow. And I was able to say that to her, and she just welled up with tears. Yeah. I almost welled up with tears. It's, I'm not kidding. Right? Like, that is... Powerful, powerful, right? <laughs> so it was—it's—it's it's really that kind of thing, you know, that came over years and years yeah. of just doing it, I guess. That's really interesting, especially getting that into a script. You yeah. know, like that's—I feel like that's—that's that's the trick. That's what we're trying to do—is right. you know, making every line as clear as possible, every right. intention behind the line. That's right. Um, that's that going into the Beethoven Symphony and figuring yeah. out which each each note. It really is, means. and it's. Yeah. Like, it feels like good advice for someone writing a second draft. Right. You know, like, go through again, do it note by note. It's really true. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still learning this because, you know, uh, writing is, 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 is coming a little later mm-hmm. in my career than well, the, the other two. And it's a never-ending process. And it's a never-ending process. And, and, man, you know, to learn the economy of writing, to learn how, to, how powerful it is when it's said with fewer words mm-hmm. and without words, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just something that yeah. takes years and years and years to yeah. figure out. And that out. without words is something I think new writers, especially in TV and film, tend to forget. Is this is a visual yeah. medium. And so do executives, by the way. Oh, so sure. do executives. Because the biggest fear in, in, in the executive world is confusion. Yeah. Um, we're constantly on, on, on Odyssey trying to walk that narrow path between confusion and ambiguity, mm-hmm. you know, the latter being great. Yeah. Well, and that's uncomfortable for a uncomfortable. lot of people. That's right. Especially yeah. executives. Yeah. You're, you can say it. <laughs> well, because their big fear is their, you know, their boss saying that didn't make sense and them yeah. going, I know, uh, I, yeah. I missed that. So, so there's a human tendency to want to overcompensate and make sure it's, of course, but of it, course. It, it's at the expense of. <clears throat> of, of something having impact. With American Odyssey, are you guys getting to make the show that you want to see? Yes. That's great. That's a great feeling. It really is. And, yeah. and, and you realize, if you've been in the business as long as I have, how rare that is. Yeah. You know? We got to do that on 30-something. Mm-hmm. Um, it was much more of a battle on Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to do it on this show. Um, and 
really, really, I mean, we've gotten such support and such reinforcement from, you know, Greenblatt and Jen Salkey and Quinn Taylor. That's excellent. Um, that just, it allows for a show to really thrive. Yeah, absolutely. You know? the, again, it's that strong authorial voice. It is. We want to have, have yeah. people respond to. It's just, yeah. it's highly collaborative, this medium. <laughs> Let's put it well, that way. Well, but you think about it, you know, when you, <laughs> we, and I, you know, I say this, whenever I hear a, sh- a show creator has been fired, mm-hmm. And then immediately afterwards, unless it's a procedural, mm-hmm. the show goes downhill and disappears. Sure. And because you, you know, try and name any show that really has been an iconic television show, other than a procedural, right. that didn't have a singular or a you know a, a single voice yeah. or vision. And the answer is, there's really aren't any. No. Um, and so you got to have that. And, and the best executives are the ones that that can nurture that, keep an eye on it, obviously, and help us be another voice that says, well, you're sure about this. Right. But still nurture the vision. Yeah. And let the vision be what it is rather than have to turn it into something else. I had this one pilot, I remember, I turned in. It was, it was um, well, I'll tell you which one it is. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <laughs> she's over there going, don't, don't. <laughs> um, Craig Wright wrote... Uh, a phenomenal script for Dirty Sexy Money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was at the time called The Darlings. Mm-hmm. That was the name of the, of the script, and it was amazing. And that's why we got the cast that we got: Donald Sutherland, Peter mm-hmm. Krause, you know, yeah. Jill Clayburgh. And we got this amazing group of of actors to do it. And we directed. The, I directed this pilot. And we turned in the cut, and it was a really cool pilot, really edgy and interesting. And and ABC took a look at it at the time, and they said, great pilot, if it were for HBO, it's not ABC. Hmm. They, they had us go back in the editing room and reinvent it in the editing room Wow! as an ABC show. Sure. And in my opinion, that's why the show didn't succeed, because mm-hmm. um, yeah, it makes wasn't sense. what it was meant to be. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this was six, seven years ago, yeah. and at the time... Everything did sort of look the same, that's and everyone right. wanted everything to look the same. That's I think right. we're we're getting to a time where maybe that's starting to push out, even in network. And and I think American Odyssey is a great example of that. Um, yeah. April fifth on NBC. We usually wrap up by talking about what you are watching and enjoying <laughs> and reading and listening to these days. Um, but before that, I want to ask about uh, conspiracy thrillers. <laughs> Um, did you guys go back and watch uh, some of these, or you know, are there ones from the classic ones in the seventies to even uh, the Informer and stuff a little more current that you guys looked at as far as how to tell the story or to get inspired by these films? Well, certainly, uh, Traffic, mm-hmm. um, Babel, mm-hmm. or however he pronounces that, Babel. Whatever. Does he pronounce it strangely? I've heard I've heard a number of pronunciations of it. I always call it babble. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I mean, certainly Three Days of the Condor is 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 just mm-hmm. there. In the parallax view. All of those things are are all informing what we what we've done. But I think the insider, mm-hmm. um, and and um, you know. The more modern takes on it were, you know, like traffic and stuff like that. Even though it's not a conspiracy, really, traffic. But it does have that broad scope. And it's it's a broad scope, and it's and it's about something current going on Mm -hmm. in the world at that time, told from different points of view, and Mm -hmm. and just being, you know, bold in that way. I mean, Soderbergh is one of the boldest directors I've ever seen, and he's another one of my heroes. Um, Always interesting. Always interesting. Always taking something and turning it on his ear, and and. it's what we're trying to do with this. We're trying to. That's one of the things we did in the writers' room constantly. Was how can we do this in right. a way no one's going to expect? How can we just make this just different? Mm-hmm. What you haven't know? we seen before? What haven't we seen? And what what haven't we thought of yeah. easily? If somebody, you think of something easily, it's usually <laughs> not a very good idea because <laughs> so, it's a trope. It's something from from your past right. you've already seen done. How can we turn it? How can we make it different and weird and interesting? I mean, we have coming up on our show an episode. Uh, I think it's four three or four, mm-hmm. we introduce a character who is, and this is based on a real character, who is a uh, cross-dressing talk show host in Mali. 
<laughs> okay. I don't know how this character fits in. You know, and you'll see. It's nice. really, it's a great storyline. And, and this character goes for a number of episodes. Cool. And again, not, you know, the opposite of what you'd think would be in the middle of a Muslim country that's, sure. you know, in, dis, in, in disarray. Neat. Um, so that's that's the fun of Odyssey. That, that's good stuff. Um, uh, do you have time to watch television? Do you have time to see movies, read books, or have you been underground working on this show for a year and a half? I, it's it really is the latter. I and yeah. my wife my wife watches everything and it's, it's like we're, when we're going to bed at night, she'll say, "You gotta watch this," and I'm like, "I have to go to bed." Right. Give um, me the synopsis. Yeah, give me the synopsis. Tell me what you like. You know, she right. lo- she loves The Walking Dead. She mm-hmm. loves The Good Wife. Um, um, you know, I started watching um, Black. Uh, uh, oh no, I've forgotten the name. Black Orphan. No, not Black Orpheus. Um, Orphan Black. Orphan Black. Yeah. Thank you very much. I started watching Orphan Black, which I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. but then I lost track of it and it went away. <laughs> um, I've tried to watch The Wire forever because I hear yeah, it's the best show the that's ever made. Especially you have to watch I The Wire. I know I do, and I've watched the pilot. I loved it, and <laughs> yeah. then I get swept you away watch with watch a bunch. <laughs> Being a parent and yeah. and doing the show, I just have, I don't really have shows that I'm watching right now. I sure. just don't. No, that's what happens. Um, you start making TV, you can't yeah, watch anymore. You can't watch it anymore. It's exactly right. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Peter. Uh, American Odyssey, April fifth. That's the last time I'm saying it. No, please keep saying it. <laughs> uh, I think people are going to dig it. Uh, and congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 